1: it.
2: Welcome back to See Also. I'm Kate Jinks and I'm Brody Lancaster. Jinxie, give me an update. Well, I'm in a bit of a mood today, BL. A bit pissy. A little bit pissy. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the fact that my girlfriend is currently in LA for the night with our friends Chelsea and Tat, drinking some natural wine in the canyons. But um, you yeah, know that is probably part of it. But
3: I don't know. It's just like let's blame the moon. Yeah, what's the moon up to? Something. She's always got something up her sleeve. I know,
2: she really does. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm just like dealing with the day. What about you? Yeah, I had a really pissy day on Saturday,
3: if that's any consolation. I mean, no, I don't want you to also have a pissy day, (laughs) but I do love to hear about a pissy day. My pissy day involved trying to go and see a picture of Dorian Gray on a little solo girl's day I'd planned for myself before I started my new job. That involved eating oysters at a place in the city and seeing a play that's like getting rave reviews and going to the sausage festival at the Wilder's Arms Hotel (laughs) by myself, reading a book while I'm there. I had really grand visions for my day and then coming home and watching the Angel Olsen livestream. Mm. Wasn't the sausage
2: festival splendor in the grass? (laughs)
3: Sorry, I'm so sorry. Sorry. Real gritty, muddy sausages. (laughs) Yeah, and then the anti-vaxxers decided to do what they do every Saturday in Melbourne and just hang out in the city and shut down the grid, meaning that I couldn't get from one end of the city to the other in time to see the play. I hate this for you. And I also
2: don't know what they have to protest anymore. They can literally leave the country if they
3: want. I was like... What mandate are you mad about? You can literally walk in unvaccinated, unmasked, and see this play? But because you're mad, I can't. Oh, no, it's horrible. It's really, I'm I'm sorry for your loss here. Absolute assholes. Yeah, I did get a really great massage last week. Um, okay. The last time we talked about your decadent little baby day was at like the glam, serene surrounds of um, sense of self. Mm-hmm. I went to a place in the city called Izumi, which is a Japanese, I think they call themselves a day spa, but it's very... Functional. You like go up a really creaky, pokey elevator and you come out and you put some slippers on, and then you just get absolutely fucking pummeled by a very small woman who put like hot towels on my back and like smacked me around. I'm pretty sure at one point she was kneeling on the back of my legs. While her elbows dug into my butt. This sounds great. It was really good. And I wanted to give them a shout out because I I had never heard of them before. A friend went ages ago and I looked on their website because I was like, I'll get a massage before I start my new, all these things before I start my new <laughs> job. And if you go on like a weekday before 12, you get like a heavily discounted hour long massage. And where is it? It's on Elizabeth Street above... An athlete's footer, a footlocker? My office is just around the corner from that. Oh, baby. Kate's got an appointment. Sorry, Miff, got to go. <laughs> do they do, like, shiatsu or...? I don't know enough about massages to know. Oh, yeah, but you know, they, they investigate. Yeah, they do a lot of stuff and it's good. Okay, this yeah. is
2: very good intel.
3: Yeah, so that's my that's my Glamazon update. This is the pod really working for us. Oh, yeah. It's just us re- literally <laughs> recommending things personally to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: Um, I'm back in on Rehoboher. <gasps> Stop. Yeah. I saw those photos of Jamie Lee Curtis appearing on it and <laughs> Dorit <laughs> reacting. And I thought, well, I have to get a piece of that. And I'm not up to that episode okay, yet. no. But, uh, no, I'm I'm in. I watched, yeah,
3: quite, quite yeah. a bit. You've got weekend. a lot of boring stuff to get through before you get mm. to mm. that scene, which made me... LOL, more than any other housewives, especially West Coast housewives, have ever made me do.
2: Mm. It was
3: so funny. Dorit, I realize that's what I sound like sometimes when I'm like, <laughs> for example, on this podcast, just you say something and I say, gorge, more chic. <laughs> <laughs> because Dorit just had to compliment every single thing. Jamie Lee Curtis, all her merch. Oh, good. It was really good. I look forward to it. What about Ultimate Girls Trip? You're still going to stay away from... I still look... Give me September. Yeah. I'll I'll work my way up to it. Can I give you a tease? Because the season's just finished. Mm Real Housewives Ultimate Girls Trip Season 2, Ex-Wives Club. Um, (laughs) For people who aren't familiar with the franchise, this spinoff is on Peacock, not Bravo. And they take a few women from each of the franchises across the country And put them together for a week as like a kind of all stars. They break break the fourth wall. They talk about what it's like being on the show. Last season, Luann talked about how many cameos she does and how much money she makes on cameo. So this season, the twist is that all their wives are people who have been fired from their respective shows. So there's a moment in (laughs) the second last episode where they're doing... Christmas in September, not a thing, but Dorinda said they would, couldn't leave Bluestone Manor without doing Christmas. Slurring all the while, of mm-hmm. course. Um, and Brandy Glanville starts talking about the Denise Richards rumor that shocked the Housewives world a couple of years ago. And Tamara Judge from the Real Housewives of Orange County says, you know, when this was all going down and you were talking about this, Denise called me for advice. And they were like, oh, that's interesting. What did you tell her? And Tamara said, oh, well, I told her, you know, is it true? Because if it's, if it's true then it, and you lie about it, the truth will come out. Denise said, no, it's not true. It's not true. And then someone said, well, who do you believe, Brandy or Denise? And Tamara said, Denise. And everyone kind of was like, oh, that's boring. <laughs> and then after a second, Brandy must have looked hurt or something. And then Tamara goes, wait, I mean Brandy. I believe Brandy. <laughs> And they were like, wait, what? You just, like, why do you believe Brandy over Denise? And she said, well, Denise tried it on with me at BravoCon. <gasps> oh. Was like, let's go back to your room. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but Denise essentially, to Tamara at BravoCon, <gasps> was like, Aaron knows we've got a situation, like, I want to fuck you. <laughs> and was going to her, I think, to subtly be like, are you going to talk? If I deny this Brandy thing, are you going to come out? And Discredit me. Can you imagine how excited the producers would have felt? Oh, imagine if you, like, if I was a producer, the camera would have it. or a cameraman, the camera starts shaking. Like, it's a moonlight at the Oscars moment, right? This is like, a, it's moonlight at the Oscars. I thought you were about to say it's a moon landing, and I was like, <laughs> yes, exactly.
2: Brandy's moonlight, and uh, this is like Denise's like, La La Land. If
3: this had happened live, this would be like when Kim Kardashian on Snapchat. Started playing the voice recordings where Taylor Swift gave permission for Kanye to sing about her own famous. Like that moment was my moon landing. (laughs) I remember where I was, I remember what I (laughs) tweeted. wow. Yeah, so, I mean... Okay, look, I'll I'll work up to
2: it. I'll work up to it. Imagine
3: that happening in a haunted house run by Dorinda Medley.
2: Well, I'm only up to the bit where we've just found out that Diana might have been a
3: sex trafficker. Oh. So, (laughs)
4: there's
3: a lot to unpack just in her. Diana Jenkins with a tongue that's always on the outside of her face. Really is.
2: Yeah.
3: (laughs) Really, really is. I'm so glad you're here.
2: Speaking of... Controversial couples. Yeah, <laughs> so not controversial at all. I had a good time reading the new Emma Corrin profile in oh, Vogue. Yeah. You know, Emma Corrin, who played Diana in The Crown. Mm-hmm. They were talking about the art that they're into and what they're reading because they're working on a screenplay, etc. Okay, and their guilty pleasure is apparently a fascination with the, the budding relationship between Selling Sunset star. <sighs> Chrishell Strauss, and a non-binary Australian rapper G-Flip. Oh,
3: my God. Rapper. That's what Vogue called them. Wow. Wow. Well, Chrishell was famously at Splendor on the weekend. Yes. I, at the pub, and
2: a photo came through from a friend. Shout out, Angus. Thank you. You saved my weekend with that photograph. Uh, so, Angus sent a photo of, of himself and Chrishell, and... Beautiful.
3: A friend of mine, Aja, whose boyfriend plays in a band that was playing at Splendor, she and I think a couple of the other wives and girlfriends of those band members posted a photo with Chriselle, and it was subtitled Wags of Splendor, which was just incredible work. Very good. I was like, I'm starstruck. And she was like, I'm shaking. (laughs) So there was an article that came out recently, Jinxie, that you shared with me because it combines... Just so many of the things that we (laughs) think and talk and and care about. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a profile on Audrey Gelman in Vanity Fair by a writer called Emily Jane Fox. And it kind of charts not just her shift from selling female empowerment through co-working spaces to selling whimsical homewares, but also like her rise in general Mm. and what it says. And this piece was... Truly so good So well written So
2: funny It was a really good piece Because I started out Yeah I was reading it And I was like Wow they're really not Sticking it to her at all Not that they need to But I was like They're not Like they're just talking about The issues of the wing There were issues Yeah Pre-pandemic issues And I was like the issues of racism mm. <laughs> and uh, mistreating staff. Yeah. And they get to that, and they, boy, do they. I, I felt that it was quite well handled. They,
3: sh- they sure do. They also, I find the use of quotes from Audrey Gelman were just kind of presented without commentary in a way that I found really funny. Like, mm-hmm. there was one where she talked about, like, you know, she's got a little kid at home and she's getting on a red eye because she's going to all these events and meetings and stuff as a person running the wing. And she says, um, I was just thinking, I really wish that I just had a little store that sold things with like primitive cows on them. <laughs> now she does. Now she does. Dream come true. I know. I mean, I, she's just an
2: interesting figure. I'm fascinated by Audrey Gelman. Mm-hmm. I mean, her rise as a political PR person in her early
3: 20s yeah obviously best friend of lena dunham and marnie based on her former girlfriend of terry richardson which is a thing that oh. like if you know you know that about her but if mm. you don't know it's a very uh it's really not a part of the story so much no
2: but it's a no it's a quite a big piece it's i reckon significant, it's a, it's thing a significant to do. Thing. so i really love the gentlewoman magazine right mm-hmm. great profiles interesting women good writers but i can look I'm still kind of peeved that they ran an issue with Angela Lansbury on the cover taken by Terry Richardson wearing Terry Richardson's glasses. I just felt that was such a massive misstep for like that magazine. recently? I'm talking maybe four or five years ago.
3: Really That's a recently. Grudge.
2: Yeah, they only release a couple of issues a year. But, well, like, yeah, I feel really – I felt like – I was like, how dare you do that? I mean, she's already – the cousin of Malcolm Turnbull, you know?
3: Hasn't so. she suffered enough? <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the Terry Richardson thing I knew about, what it was like 10 years ago?
2: Hmm.
3: You know. You know. If you know, you know, yeah. and they know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that sucks. Mm. Speaking of Murder, She Wrote, I've never watched it, but Midsummer <gasps> Murders played a big role in, like, the, the foundations of Audrey Gilman's new pivot, The Six Bells. Or yeah. Just six bells. Does it have a the? I think it's, the six, the, six it's six bells. the six bells. This is the six bells, yeah. Full of like oil portraits that seem a bit haunted mm. and like, like I said, whimsical cows. Well, I also love Midsummer Murders. You don't see me
2: opening up a cottage shop, but I've, you know, never missed an episode. But the fave, my favorite one was the murder in the. Lilliputian village. Of oh, course, it was very good episode, and <laughs> anything to do with any kind of sorcery, obviously.
3: Obviously, there's so many cults in those Midsummers. There's nothing culty about Audrey Gilmans offering, although the the wing was kind of like witchy. You know, they were like women getting together, like causing a ruckus it was a corporate
2: coven (laughs) essentially wasn't it oh my god that's perfect yeah
3: i I look i've got to say
2: i've went to the wing many a time i wanted to go i follow follow her on instagram i freshened up my makeup as a you know guest and it was a really great working space for me yeah i bought those expensive lattes i did not buy the expensive keychain that said like girls can fuck up any what is it girls yeah
3: fucking doing anything I can't remember the slogan but can I make an aside and this might seem unrelated but it is related when Taylor Swift released all too well the 10 minute version <laughs> brackets Taylor's version last year and the first part where it detours from the original and it's like the story goes that allegedly Jake Gyllenhaal had a keyring that said fuck the patriarchy in like 2011. Sorry, we weren't branding that then. Like that's the part that stuck in my head. And I was like, she didn't write this 10 years ago. Like everyone's saying it didn't happen because that was not merch because if it was, I would have bought it and I was on (laughs) Tumblr at the time and I know what we were merching when it comes to like pop feminism. And it wasn't that wasn't, we weren't quite there yet. Not to a point that Jake Gyllenhaal would have had one anyway. No, no. He would have got one like three years ago from the wing. Maggie would have given it to him.
2: (laughs) But, yeah, look, I, I yeah, I just find this whole thing so fascinating that she has stepped down from the wing, worked as a waitress at a diner or something for three months. Okay. Apparently. And then has reemerged with this shop. And this shop is such a, like, it's based on, like, a small parish village, a yeah. <laughs> fictional village in England, right? Yeah, It just is the kind of obviously the most cosy thing you could ever go to. And it mm. seems like... She had to step away from all of these very large issues of systemic racism and corporate workplace culture, essentially, and hierarchical ways of doing business. But now it's sort of gone this extreme other way. I don't know why no one's really talking about like people are like, oh, that's silly that she's got this thing, Mm. but it
3: just seems like. I think it's hard to look at everything she's done in the past, which is all very strategic. Like she's clearly a strategic thinker in that she used to do that for a like nothing troller and made him like the celebrity favorite, you know, mm-hmm. that was her early years. And then when she was making the wing, it was so strategic and it was a great idea, a great concept. They clearly were very, very successful. There was a lot of, I don't want to keep saying word strategic, but there was a lot of like deliberate thought behind it that it's very hard not to be cynical seeing this move and being like, okay, what does she want us to think about her because of this move? Because every move she's made so far has been a branding exercise basically for Mm -hmm. either her or for modern womanhood or for politics, you know, it's all been so – such specific decisions that it's like well she didn't just do this to make carols chiming in <laughs> just know, like yeah my little backup singer thanks babe you know it's very hard to take an uncynical approach to be like she just wanted to sell a milk jug mm. isn't that nice and wear overalls in and- Park Slope or wherever it is, Clinton Hill.
2: Yeah, I think that's it. I think that it's just, it's hard not to be cynical about it, but I remain fascinated. Um, So apparently the Six Bells takes its inspiration from a tiny shop located in the fictional village of Barrows Green, Mm. a small civil parish with 640 residents, depending on who is dying and how many babies are being born. So Disney, (laughs) but there is one- So eerie. Like truly cunty article I found. (laughs) 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 <laughs> that I have to share because I'm also not saying like I don't want some of the products or whatever. Like I'm, you know, we're you know we all
3: want we all the products. Want. It's I don't the annoying want
2: a $75 thing. cutting board in the shape of a pig, though. Thank you very much. No, um, I'll just check the Brotherhood of Saint Lawrence for that, um,
3: <laughs> and then say no thanks, no
2: thanks. But yeah, there was this article that is. It's just, it's, I was just about to say
3: Audrey Gelman would open the sisterhood of St. Lawrence.
2: <laughs> oh my gosh, truly. Um, this article, this slate writer was also fascinated by this fictional village and then applied the people who supposedly live there and it's 640 residents and the fact that it's this small town and in the text that, like, that Audrey Gelman created or whoever created, it says that this is a shop that is part of their daily ritual and so they were looking at... Statistics of how many people Could actually afford any of these things
3: (laughs) Using like what
2: Surveys According to like data from the United Kingdom's Office of National Statistics Like they went really deep It's a census of the six bells Yes and anyway it's just A really funny delightful. I just love it when someone is like I'm going to apply my data skills
3: to this and be a total cunt about it. I love it. Cunty stats. Mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. One thing that this article made me think about is like in the swathe of disgraced startup prestige TV shows of the last six months, where the fuck is the wing show? Where is it? Where is the Apple TV plus show where like, I don't know, Rebecca, what's her face plays Audrey Gelman? Who am I thinking of? Rebecca, Johnson. What I'm thinking is Demone, and that's so wrong. <laughs> it's not Rebecca Demone. It's like you know Rebecca, that that sure, I yeah. Someone tell me the brunette called Rebecca. Someone will know. Mm-hmm. Um, play, plays Audrey Gelman, but like younger. Who would it be? Who would play her? It's like a young Angelina? No, not Angelina Jolie. Too edgy. <laughs> it's Allison Williams. Let's be real. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it truly is. That would be like. Incredible stunt casting to cast Alison. Williams oh my god, as they Because there was that WeWork show that yes. I didn't see that. Never was that the one watch. with,
2: oh, what's his
3: name? Leto in Leto, the Ghetto? Leto yeah. and Anne Hathaway.
2: I only ever, that's how I remember Jared Leto's name. Because in an interview once in like 2003, a journalist asked him how to pronounce his name. And he said,
3: it's Leto, like in the ghetto. No. Uh-huh. As opposed to Leto in the, Guido. (laughs) (laughs) Overall, like what I was saying before about her branding this, I, I did find really interesting thinking about like what the wing did for kind of that millennial aesthetic as it applies to feminism specifically, like what that did for merchandise. It turned the idea of like a co-working space for women or a space for women full stop into like a magazine and, like, events and, like, thousands of dollars of fees every year. And, you know, now she's kind of branded coziness and, like, slowing down mm. when that is a thing that... I mean, we'll give her that. She was right on the money because after the last two years, that's what everyone is, like, either pursuing or wishes they could.
2: Yeah, I think this is, like, the new... Like mason jar
3: aesthetic. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's totally. like that, but amped up. It's kinfolk magazine if it started now. Totally. Like, Homewares is where girl bosses like sell Aspiration now.
2: Yeah, it's yeah. true. There was a, a line in the profile that I thought was so spot on and funny. It was, She is pretty and rich, unfailingly pulled together, and friends with everyone you hate watch on the internet. Wow.
3: <laughs> I mean, there we go. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I've got a C also. Oh, yeah, give me. Aside from that Gundy <laughs> statistic <laughs> one, uh, if you're into a more Victorian living, which we were talking about, that is the supposedly the origin story for this Xennial Cluttercore thing.
3: Yeah. Apparently they like Paisley because of the Victorians. Well, I love Paisley. We all love Paisley. We love toil We love Twill, 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 Print. Twill. Twill. Rachel Antonoff knows. I recommend this book called I've Seen the
2: Future and I'm Not Going, the art scene in downtown New York in the 1980s by artist Peter McGoff. He was part of this art duo with his romantic and sort of business partner. They rose to fame in the 80s. And they dressed and made work and lived entirely as if they were living in the Victorian era. So they had this townhouse... Um, in Alphabet City. I think they lived upstate as well. It didn't have electricity, had no modern appliances, etc. Mm. Really incredible work and commitment to it's like can I go, like the Gilbert and George thing, but yeah to a whole other level. Yeah. That book is absolutely incredible, it was one of the favourite things I read like a couple of years ago. But there's a good New York Times article about it that we'll link to
3: Mm. Yeah. I read that last week that New York Times article cuz I think you linked it when we were talking about Victorian cluttercore mm. stuff. And um I wasn't familiar with Peter McGoff until I read it. And I was just really thrilled by his like affectations as this kind of like downtown dandy who like got made fun of by art critics for using an easel and wearing an apron to protect his suits. But there was a part where he talked about like not having a f- smartphone or like not using a phone really and he was like life is for art and for you know time is a thing that you lose so much of why are we spending all our time looking at these little screens and i have thought about that every night when i look at my screen time before i go to bed and i'm like what am i doing with my life why am i making art or oh, you could just go shopping at the six bells i could that's a way to slow down head down to your little parish village shop <laughs> slow down trademark symbol <laughs> <laughs> Jinxie, we have to talk about a couple of new TV shows that we've been watching. We're contractually obliged. Contractually obliged by Apple TV, um, our masters at Lumen, etc. The first is a show on Apple TV called Loot, which started maybe like a month or so ago. It's the new Maya Rudolph star vehicle. She plays a woman called Molly Novak, who in the opening scenes of the first episode Her husband, played by Adam Scott, our king, she finds out that he has been having an affair with his assistant. They get a divorce. It's all over the tabloids. It's very like Bill and Melinda, Jeff Bezos and whoever that woman is who now has lots of money, etc. And she ends up with $37 billion and has to figure out what to do with it. And what she does is just works at one of the charitable organisations that she had been putting her name to for all these years.
2: Yeah, so she decides to go out and party with her assistant and kind of best friend, who's played by Joel Kim Booster. God, he's so good in this. So good. And essentially the person who runs the one of the foundations calls her up and says, you need to stop. You're making us look very bad. Come into work. And it goes from there. And it becomes very quickly like a workplace comedy. It becomes... Parks and Recreation, but
3: rich. And it's created by those people, yes? Yeah, it's created well, by- Writers? Those people. The, it's created by those people. You know, guys. <laughs> Matt Hubbard and Alan Yang co-created the show. And Alan Yang's name is very familiar to me. He was like a writer and producer on Parks and Rec for years. He now co-hosts the Parks and Recreation Recap podcast with Rob Lowe and he also co-created and won an Emmy for Master of None with Aziz Ansari. And so a lot of his experiences are like written into, especially the first season of that show. The Parks and Wreckiness of it is right there on the surface, but kind of without, I mean, Parks and Rec wasn't an edgy show, but it had some kind of like sharp jokes in there. And I feel like Loot is a little toothless. Mm. Like it, it's not as... It's not as pointy about, like, class and money as you want it to be. It's not as pointy about, like... The divorce stuff can be kind of fun, but I don't know. I'm just really left wanting more from it. I haven't watched any of Parks and Rec.
2: I've barely seen an episode. That whole show to me is gifts of Aubrey Plaza rolling her eyes that got sent to me all the time because... Yeah. That's something I like to engage in. Sure. Um, from time to time. Uh, rolling my eyes, not gifts of Aubrey Plaza, I just want to say. Um, but, yeah, I, I do think it is really toothless. And I felt like, I don't know, the name is so good. Maya mm-hmm. Rudolph is so good. Mm-hmm. The setup is great. I thought that this could be some kind of, I don't know, to have a bit more bite about the 1% just than anything, it does. really.
3: Like... The first, I think it's the first episode they're donating all this money to a shelter for women experiencing homelessness, and Maya Rudolph's character gets up and makes this absolutely deluded, like, out-of-touch-with-reality kind of speech about, like, I've never been homeless, but I once had to stay at the plaza, which is basically the same thing. Yeah. And, like... I thought it was funny because it's like, yes, she's a fish out of water. She's like a, a woman who's been in this bubble of wealth. And she's trying to relate. She's trying to relate and she's doing a bad job and she's failing, but she starts doing well at it very quickly. And so the opportunities for that disappear really I felt
2: the same way. Like when she did that, I thought, oh, okay, they're going to really lean massively into her giving these delusional speeches and being completely out of touch. But... Yeah, she's pretty good and winning everyone over by episode two, essentially.
3: Yeah, um, and, like, the sexy party girl part of the first episode disappears then as well. You know, I want her to be more out of touch, I think. She's she's styled like Maya Rudolph is styled in real life, too, which I love. Like, I love, adore. Maya Rudolph never puts a foot wrong in her looks, but I'm also, like... I kind of want her to be, like, sexier. Hmm. Yeah,
2: see, I really like the costuming yeah. of her. Because she's working with Kirsty Lee Mann, who she's worked on with forever. Okay. But I quite liked that. I agree the sexy thing, but I quite like that it is not just, like, head-to-toe Gucci or something. Like, she's wearing these slightly smaller designers. Mm-hmm. She's wearing, like, Vampire's Wife, et cetera. Yeah. And I quite liked that side of things, that it sort of looked like that was actually where her interest
3: really lies. Yeah, totally. The early shots too are like, as we spoke about so in-depth last week, it's a very selling sunset. You know, there are these shots of her like going into the closet and it's the size of a large townhouse, you know. <laughs> yeah. it's, the, the location is this insane Piece of real estate, right? Mm-hmm. The- yeah, oh,
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um it's the third, the third largest house or something in the states. It is in Bel Air. It's called the One. It has twenty one bedrooms, forty nine bathrooms, one hundred and five thousand square feet. It has five swimming pools, a bowling alley, a forty seat movie theater, a thirty car garage. And a primary bedroom suite that clocks in at well over the size of the average American home at five and a half thousand square
3: feet. It's wild, like it's the huge the like zoom out shots of this property. It's like a pool and then another. It looks like a cruise ship, it really does. With cars outside, it really does. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, there is like a very fun scene very early on when she decides she's going to go into the office of the charity and and work, and she's really excited to go to work. And she's like, "All right, everyone, gather around and." here I go off to work. And in front of her are like the hundreds of staff who keep her life and her home together. And then she leaves and they all have this moment of like, what are we doing? She's not here. And they just have a big pool party. Yeah. That's cute. It's really cute. Yeah. One thing
2: that I, I feel like they set up this thing where she is trying to kind of be, show how nice she is. And, you know, she takes her, staff to like the spa and she puts them on a private jet and blah, blah, blah. And they all kind of have these tiny moralistic issues with it, but then very quickly become like very quickly just accept everything. And you don't see them ever really wrestling with it any more than in that snap decision of, oh, yes, I will get on the plane. Mm. And I think like this, I don't know, there should be a lot more tension there and that would make it more interesting. And maybe it would be commenting on,
3: Anything. Anything. Yeah. yeah. The The head of the charity is played by an actress called Michaela Jai Rodriguez. And she is kind of the moral center, I guess. And it's this really fun kind of ensemble cast. But she, yeah, is always the one to kind of push back and be like, I can't be seen doing this elaborate, expensive, bougie thing. It makes us look bad. And then does it? Mm. Yeah, you're right.
2: Yeah, I find all of that just a
3: bit... Yeah. And we're living in a post knowing Kylie Jenner takes three minute flights across LA world. Yeah, we know. We know. So the private jets um, on this and Rehobaha and et cetera were like mm, climate criminals.
2: Yeah. It's really. Yeah. And the fact that they run this not for profit foundation, I don't really understand the foundation, but there are only like a couple of people who work there. And I don't, I don't know. Like w- there's. We don't have enough information about this company. Yes,
3: yeah, and they, at the in the very first episode, she's like, "What do I spend my money on?" I want to end world hunger, and they say we're just based in Los Angeles, so we can't do that. And she's like, "Okay," and I was like, "Really?" (laughs) You can do a little. You've got a couple of billion there. That's where negotiating
2: begins and ends, I guess. Yeah. Um, Uh, My favorite thing about the show is probably Joel Kim Booster, and and obviously like Maya Rudolph aside, she's perfect angel etc but um how do you say his name how do you say Cucumber Ron Funches 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 Ron Funches Funches as this character Howard and I really love the friendship that has been developing between those
3: two characters yes adore Ron Funches and yeah that is a really cute little buddy moment as we're talking about it and we're like this character kind of we got over that in the first episode or this storyline was raised and then resolved it's like should this have been a web series? Well, who's the blonde girl? The she blonde has had girl. one line. She works for the company, the foundation. Oh, my God. There are t- There's an older blonde woman and there's a younger blonde girl. And they don't, I don't know either well, the of the younger them. one, she had one quite good line where it was
2: like a photo of her family came up. And she said, I'm sorry, we're so white. But that was, that's about it. I don't, I don't feel like, she just shrugs. Yeah.
3: <laughs> and yeah. the old lady just kind of like. Dances and is excited in the background Your aura is looking very sexy today or something, you know. If you are familiar with like Brooklyn nine nine, it's very much the realm of like the two older guys in the police squad, like Mike and Sully or whatever their names are, of just kind of like background cast, but like imagine those guys doing even less.
2: Mm, Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. It is very much this sort of nice Ted Lasso vibe, right? Oh my
3: god, it's to- it's Apple TV Plus. It's so Ted Lasso. Yeah, I think they're just really trying very hard to be nice. I remember seeing a tweet like a year ago where someone who works in comedy like television in LA said like good luck to us because every pitch meeting or like network meeting I've been in recently all everyone wants is Ted Lasso. Mm. And that's really what we're... Oh, my God, this is nice TV. Yeah. Boring. I know, but it's not...
2: It's like we were talking, oh, like, before about... like Many episodes ago about, like, Emily in Paris and, like, the rise of sort of ambient TV. Yeah. And Loot doesn't feel like ambient t- TV to me because it, because it is expressly dealing with the 1% and, like, the... 0.003 percent of the one percent essentially yeah. it feels like it needs to do more like if you're going to tackle this like wealthy billionaireess who runs this foundation who's doing so- and also has some like bad assets yeah. in the mix you need to be doing something a little with it you can't just put a beret on and
3: yeah it can't be obscene wealth kill the rich but she's nice yeah. Yeah.
2: It's, yeah, it's not doing enough. Yeah. But it hasn't finished yet. And I keep hearing that the final episode will really make you think. Oh, so really? So we'll
3: see. Okay. Well... One thing I have been – because I haven't been reading a whole lot about Loot. I haven't seen very many people talking about it. I did read one review recently where they – it was like a recap of an episode. It wasn't very well written, so I won't link it. But the person writing it did say, like, I love the music in this show. They're doing such a great job with the music. And I have to say, I think I told you this when I first started watching it, the music is my least favorite part of it. It's – the theme song reminded me of something – And I shazammed it and it was literally just a song about like getting money that had been written for loot. And that's kind of the vibe of all the music in the show. It's like sound alikes of like late 90s, early 2000s hip hop about having a lot of money. Yeah. And there's the same music cue that's used maybe half a dozen times within the space of like two or three episodes. It's all got the vibe of like, baby, I got your money (laughs) And it's all just kind of by the time you hear it for like the by the time you hear a rap song about having so much money for like the sixth time, it starts to feel like the show is really budget. (laughs) Yeah, it's like Selling Sunset or Lux yes. Listing Sydney. Yeah, give I would rather a, like a B-roll, like AI written song about like having lots of money in LA. Yeah, like a little Pomeranian trotting past the <laughs> yes. Rodeo Drive
2: sign. B-roll of the one. They did one, look, the one music thing I'll give them is um, there was a really nice use of uh, Brian Eno and John Cale's song Spinning Away in it. I was like, I haven't heard that in a TV show maybe before. Okay. I liked that. But I mean, that's a world away from talking about having millions of dollars.
3: They're allowed to win.
2: They're allowed to win.
3: Yeah. I will say Caitlin Riley, who is a comedian I'm most familiar with from seeing her pop up on TikTok. She had a couple of appearances in Hacks this season as one of the HBO executives, and she appears in Loot. She's a recurring cast member as one of the wives of my Rudolph's ex-husband's like rich friends and so they were part of like the rich wives who'd like hang out and do you know glamorous things together and now that she's divorced she kind of and has a conscience i guess she feels like at odds with her old life and her old friends and caitlin riley is just like a delight to watch she's that like blonde woman with a very elastic expressive face Hmm. yeah she's great
2: I like, how do you say Dylan Galula? <laughs> how do you say her name? I think like that. It's Dylan Galula, guys. Um, <laughs> she plays the woman that Adam Scott leaves Maya Rudolph for. It's, that's in the trailer. I'm not spoiling. But she also was the daughter in Kimmy Schmidt, and she was very good in that, loved her in that. And she is a favorite on Twitter.
3: Oh, really? She's very good. She's quite mean. It's great. I'm into that. Yeah. Yeah, She gives good mean girl. Yeah. So
2: obviously we're always going to be obsessed with TV shows about money and billionaires and people acting badly who have money and loot sort of kind of falls into that category, but I don't know. It's not, yeah, as we were saying, it's like not toothy enough. Yeah. But On the other end of the spectrum, there is Killing It, which we brought up a couple of episodes ago, and now BLU have seen most of it. Yeah. It's, I think it's a great, great, like, biting comedy series starring Craig Robinson as a guy named Craig who's got a dream. He's an entrepreneur whose work never kind of goes anywhere. He is trying to raise money to look after himself but his child he and his wife have divorced they share custody but he's never kind of able to show up in the way that he wants to show up and he's trying to get twenty thousand dollars to buy some land in the everglades and he wants to plant these fruit trees and sell the fruit (laughs) to pharmaceutical companies essentially to make like prostate medicine
3: yeah, it's a very, um, it's a very <laughs> elaborate scheme. It's not get rich quick by any means. Which I love that yeah. it's this, you know, that it's not get
2: rich quick. Like his big plan in life is, and apparently he's got lots of plans like that, but the, this one that means everything to him is like setting yourself up. This is like a, I don't know, 20 year plan. I don't know. Yeah. How long does this stuff
3: take to grow? Who told you about these <laughs> magic beans, Craig? Yeah, I I don't know if I would have watched Killing It if not for your recommendation, and I'm really glad that I did. So thank you. It's such a strange and, like, cool show, the way that it's written and cast. The performances are really great. You literally never know where it's going to kind of go next. Um, It's such a surprising show and I really love that. It does that thing that I love in a series where the first couple of episodes introduce you to everyone and the stories and then from there it follows one person at a time and then kind of at the start of the next episode they link back up and then you follow someone else and then they link back up and you follow someone else, which is really a really fun way to tell so many stories of so many people hustling and when i say hustling i don't mean it in like the poster on your wall from etsy written in gold paint being like hustle babe it's the opposite of the wing kind of hustle Hmm. it is like people breaking their backs and the bank to get out of poverty like how expensive it is to be poor in america Hmm. is essentially what the show depicts and it's really Like that's really dire, all of the circumstances that the characters find themselves in are really dire, but it also manages to be funny and like really sweet at the same time.
2: Yeah, so Claudia O'Doherty, she co-stars, she's so good. Her character Gillian is this Australian who is living in the States and is trying to stay there and has been there for pretty much all of her life. Mm. But she has nine jobs trying to essentially raise enough money to get a lawyer to stay in the country.
3: Yeah. And Um, is essentially homeless, has a place to sleep, but doesn't have a home. Yeah. uh, What you said about, like, it's basically about how expensive it is to be poor. Yeah. I just thought
2: it's doing something really... It's just doing something kind of new and interesting for me. And I liked that it's set in like Trump's America. So it's set a couple of years ago Mm -hmm. and it really shows the kind of systemic racism of capitalism and like late era capitalism, especially in the States. But there's this one great episode where Craig is trying to vote and just
3: every obstacle that could come up does come up. That episode was great. That episode was brilliant, and it came after like there were just there was such. I haven't finished the series yet, so I'm sure it keeps going at this rate. But like there is a run of episodes where it's just hit after hit after hit. There's one that I just loved so much. Um, it's called the Task Rabbit, and Gillian Claudio Doherty's character in an effort to make money, offers herself as the rabbit for a wealthy woman, played by Darcy Carden, who just needs someone in her house while she goes off to an event. If the In case the IRS comes, Claudia O'Doherty's task is to say, yes, I'm her, I'm Sloane. And she has a guest over, played by our king from Search Party, John Reynolds. <laughs> and it's just, it devolves into this really dark twisted episode about this rich woman Sloane played by Darcy kind of getting off on controlling and having power over the people who work for her. And it's really, it's really funny and really smart and really fucking dark And then, yeah, it's followed up by the episode where Craig is just trying to vote and his options are just dwindling as the day goes on. And he's being told it's so important that you vote. It's so important that your voice is heard and your vote is counted. But when you're trying to make money because you need to survive, spending a whole day standing out in the sun not making any money to exercise your democratic right is really fucking hard.
2: Yeah. The Craig character is so interesting in that he's constantly faced with these morality issues where yeah. he could, he could do the bad thing and he could take the money or he'd get the money for himself or, you know, take the easy option, but he's such a like good guy and mm-hmm. he's so intent on being this good person in the world.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He keeps playing by the rules, but like at what cost essentially. And he- I, and it is sort of looking at, The idea of, like, kindness in a very different way to, like, loot. But in this, they end up making these connections with each other because of the position
3: that they're in. Yeah, we're introduced to Craig and his brother Isaiah as well when they're just kids. So in the first episode, it opens with them and they're seeing one of them steals candy from a corner shop and their dad marches them in, makes them apologise and give the candy back to the guy behind the counter. And then they leave... And then I think has stolen something again that time. So the dad goes back in to apologize and give it back and realizes that the man behind the counter was actually holding up the actual owner of the shop, kills their dad. And you just see over the course of the show the lessons that Craig and Isaiah took away from that moment are so different. Like Craig took from his dad. You always have to tell the truth. You always have to be a good person and do the right thing, return the candy that you stole. And Isaiah takes from it. When you do the right thing, you get fucking shot. Mm. So why do the right thing when you can lie and cheat and steal and kill your way to whatever, like Skerrick of freedom you can find, you know?
2: Yeah. And you know, it comes down to, I quite like that it's set around the Everglades and a competition to kill as many pythons as possible because they're completely overrunning the wilderness there, which is true. Like the, yeah. yeah. And that there's, they don't have a natural predator as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a lot of like, you know, kill the rich, eat the rich. It's whacking day. Yeah. The show. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, I highly recommend it. It's, yeah, I, I wouldn't have watched it, I think, uh, aside from Claudia
3: being in it. Yeah. There was, I mean, you mentioned the last time um, we talked about the show, Tim Heidecker's role in it. It's so good. Oh, my God. It is God. so good. He's, he's built for that role. He's so good. He does wall-wall, which is a workout with oxygen <laughs> when he's wearing a mask strapped to his face while he does, like, bench... Pressing, I don't know. Um, His character's name is Rodney LaMonca and he runs like a kind of guru, like self-empowerment scam. Like an Anthony Robbins style. Yes, where it costs like hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to come and find out how to get rich quick. And the way to get rich is basically be him. And it's called, instead of dominate, it's called Dominine. (laughs) It's very Girls 5 ever. It, uh, you're right. It really is. He His character <laughs> reminded me of... Remember the family in Us that it was like him and Elizabeth Moss yeah. and they're like horrible twin daughters? Mm-hmm. It kind of is like if that guy had not been severed by his like <laughs> <laughs> underground twin and killed like what would he have become? And the answer is like Rodney Lamonca is the answer. Totally, And he has this horrible daughter. Who's I love like that daughter. A tween called Prada Lamonca. Yeah, and she's, yeah. <laughs> she's like a shark tank um, <laughs> judge, but <laughs> 11. Yeah, she's really good. And there's um, already a season two, like it's been signed uh, on for a second season. So I think I'll probably finish watching the first season tonight. And I, I can't wait to find out what happens. I have a little bit of a see. also, I think a couple of years ago, maybe like three years ago, Claudio Doherty's web series came out. It's called Sarah's Channel and it was created by Nick Coyle, which I thought was really fucking strange and cool and funny and kind of takes like a very gruesome, fantastical horror movie spin on beauty guru, YouTube beauty tutorial culture, which is really fun. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes.
2: time for also also is a section of the show where we recommend a few things that have nothing to do with anything else that we've been talking about. BL what's your first one?
3: Uh, My first one is a recipe it's by the chef Khan Ong who um, I follow on social media I've never really made any of his recipes before but a week or so ago, a friend sent me a TikTok where he makes hungover breakfast for him himself and his housemate. Sometimes their friends come over and his housemate requested steak and eggs. And it is that's not something that I would ever cook for myself. And I don't need a whole lot of red meat. But I watched this video and it was like a Vietnamese, almost like you make this pan of like Vietnamese flavored steak and you put in like processed kind of hot dogs and eggs and onions and sauce and then you serve it with like fresh coriander fresh cucumber on banh mi baguette and I made it on the weekend I invited over my friend Sarah who had sent me the video and it was phenomenal it was so easy and I mean I had to go out and get a few specific things because I didn't have like a whole baguette and like steak in my house but it was so worth it so quick and like An incredible, incredible breakfast, hungover or not. That sounds good. (laughs) Really yummy. My first one is a read and cook also, bit of a combo. Mm -hmm.
4: Uh,
2: It's Valerie Stiver's Eat Your Words column in the Paris Review. It's all online. It's all free. And it's cooking inspired by books, either a very specific meal from a particular book or the vibe of the book. Mm. It's a really long running series. She started it in 2017 I've made only one recipe from it It was very good, but each one is just so delightful to read. And often I have not read the books. I would say a good 80% of the books that she talks about, I have not read. And, uh, it doesn't, doesn't really matter. Like they're just such kind of fun pieces. Mm. Um, you really get a sense of the author or the book or also where Valerie Stivers is in her
3: life at that time. It's, they're really lovely. Mm, I love that. My next one is, I mean, it's an article that you've probably seen shared a hundred times by the time you're hearing this. I was a little slow on the uptake though. Um, So I'm recommending it now. It's an article by Tim Kreider in the New York Times called It's Time to Stop Living, the American Scam. And maybe kind of related to like a killing it style subject matter. Tim Kreider basically wrote this piece a decade ago called The Busy Trap, which has been floating around since people have written rebuttals to it. I'm sure there's probably like a Ted talk that skimmed the, the points that he made and presented it as new information. Anyway, that sounded like a dig. It wasn't, um, <laughs> no offense, Ted. Um, but it just, it really connected to me. It's kind of like a post pandemic check-in on how we're all feeling about capitalism, I guess. Tim Creta I think is a freelancer. So he kind of, describes himself as like not being on this kind of hamster wheel, but also still feeling the impulse or the pull or the like temptation or the guilt that comes along with it. And there was a part of it that um, I'm going to read that I just really connected to and keep thinking about where he said we're currently experiencing the civilizational equivalent of that anxiety you feel when you have something due the next day that you haven't even started thinking about and yet still you sit there helplessly watching whole seasons of mediocre TV or compulsively clicking through quintillions of memes, even as your brain screams at you the same way we scream at our politicians about guns and abortion and climate change to do something. And there is just so little that I relate to more than the thought of a looming deadline or a looming threat and just thinking, what the... How how are we going to do anything? I need to read that. It's a good piece. And it just, I don't know, it kind of, it doesn't offer a whole heap of solutions, but it does kind of make the case for like, why are we still living and working and operating this way? And it's a little one of those like, oh, I feel a little less alone for thinking this way or living this way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've got a watch also... Australia edition. Oh, brackets Taylor's version. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck the patriarchy key ring. <laughs> Listen also brackets Jinxie's version.
2: <laughs> I've still been getting requests for recommendations for MIF, the Melbourne International Film Festival. Keep them coming. I love to give. Uh, if you need one, this isn't included as in my watch also. But if you have a spare ticket in your pass for the cinemas, go see War Pony. I don't think I mentioned that enough when we were talking about it, but I loved Warpony.
3: I think you mentioned it when you came back from Cannes and you were like Elvis's granddaughter's movie. (laughs) And I was like, what?
2: Yeah, it's so great. But this is for a film that you can watch anywhere in Australia. It's on Myth Play, which is the online film festival version. It will be running from the 11th to the 28th of August. So there's plenty of time. Uh, It's The Passengers of the Night. I saw it in Berlin earlier this year. It stars Charlotte Gunsberg as this mother who is kind of on the back foot. She's uh, not with her husband anymore and she's raising her two their two teenage children. And it's set in 1981 and then in 1984 and for the first time in a, in a long time, she has to get a job, essentially. It's kind of like loot, but not really. Uh, and she, everything's connected. <laughs> and she takes a job uh, working for a radio show called "The Passengers of the Night," which is a very late-night call-in radio show. The music is very good. Um, there's a go-betweens track in it. Oh. But yeah, it's this like moody, lovely
3: early '80s Paris. Charlotte Gainsbourg. What a vibe. I'm so excited to see that one. My last one is a read also. It's a book from a few years ago by Jenny Slate, the actor and comedian and writer. It's called Little Weirds. And I was just really struck at the time that it came out by how much it like veered from my expectations of like what a a book by a celebrity would be. I think I was expecting like a a bossy pants or a what was Amy Poehler's book called? Yes, please. Or whatever. Just listicles. Yeah. Mm. And it wasn't like how I got it or how sad I was when I got fired from Saturday night live or, you know, making it in comedy. It was none of that. It was like this really artful, like beautiful, poetic, sad book. Um, And if you've watched Jenny Slate's like her Netflix special from a couple of years ago, you kind of appreciate the tone of this. I think Um, like a very thoughtful book And very excited to be able to finally pull out from under my bonnet, like a little secret, which is that I am hosting an event with Jenny Slate at the Melbourne Writers Festival. So I'm about to reread Little Weirds so that it's fresh in my mind when I talk to her at the start of September. I'm so excited for that. I am so excited. The more I think about it, the more I'm like, if anyone else... Got us to do this besides me, I would have been so furious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah, that's so, really cool. Yeah, I'm really excited. I'm going to wear a cute dress and get my nails done, and hopefully, she'll think I look good.
2: Great. And everyone in Melbourne will have just seen her film, My Sell the Shell, with shoes on at Miff. So, you know. Precisely, mm-hmm. you and I included. <laughs> um, my last one is a watch also UK edition,
3: <laughs> brackets Jinxie's version.
2: <laughs> um uh, the Newsreader, the oh. ABC show that we both really loved Adore uh, Is just out now in the UK on BBC2 and BBC iPlayer It's about an Australian news show set in 1986 A lot is happening It's such a good show <laughs> Lindy Jamelin is happening Chernobyl is happening The Challenger Shuttle The AIDS Crisis It covers a lot of ground Mm-hmm and it's just its so great to spend time with these characters. Anna Torv is fantastic in the lead role. I, it's just such a good show. It's beautifully put together,
3: beautifully written. My favourite Australian show in a very long time, I have to say. Absolutely same. I slept on it for way too long. And when I finally watched it, I was like, this is... I'm so glad that Australia is still making shows this good. Yeah. And they're
2: already in production on
3: uh, season two, which is very cool. Yeah. I saw they were casting for like people to be in a parade or some kind of like scene in the CBD recreating like a real event that happened, which I'm very excited about. As yeah. Well, always. I love seeing Melbourne on film. So if you
2: have friends in the UK, you should tell them to watch it. I'm sure you can still watch it on iview if oh, you haven't watched
3: it yet. Absolutely. Say cheerio. Watch the newsreader. Yeah. In it. Pip. thank you for listening to this week's episode of see also we're gonna have a couple of like different uh styles of episodes coming up in the next few weeks that we're really excited to try out where we're just going to spend one whole episode focusing on a film that we really love um so very excited about those uh coming soon but if you liked this one, please share it with your friends. Tag us at podcast on Instagram and head to Apple Podcasts to leave a five star rating and a little review for us. We love
2: reading them. Thank you to Samuel Hodge for our imagery and Harvey Sutherland for our original theme music. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Pip pip.
4: D-E-R-M dot com.